We have lived our lives in an environment in which top-down mandates were largely accepted and respected. We are now in a time where employees want more agency and they want to have a voice. So you need to start with listening. From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard from Bonnie Dowling. She joins us today to discuss what's commonly being referred to as the Great Resignation, something that's sweeping through many industries and countries. As the pandemic has made many of us rethink what matters most in our lives and careers, workers have been leaving their roles in record numbers. So what can employers do to retain their talent? And can they actually turn this challenge into a recruitment opportunity? To answer these questions, I'd like to turn to our guests, the authors of a recent McKinsey article titled, Great Attrition or Great Attraction? The Choice is Yours. Bonnie is an associate partner in our Denver office. Her client work focuses on organizational transformations, and she has deep expertise in end-to-end talent management. Brian Hancock is a partner in our Washington, D.C. office, and he's the global co-leader of our work on talent. Bonnie and Brian, welcome to our podcast. Brian, in the article, you point out a number of disconnects between what employees are looking for and what employers are offering. How much has the pandemic contributed to this divergence, or is there something else behind it? Thank you, and and thank you for having us. As we look at what's happening in the pandemic, we're really seeing that it's accelerated some previous ongoing macro trends. And so in terms of increased connectivity, before the pandemic, there was already the ability for organizations to connect remotely, connect across various locations. But COVID forced all of us in office work for at least some period of time to move to 100% virtual operating environment. I mean, so that increased connectivity that you had, the occasional video conference or call, all of a sudden, you know, there was a huge uptake in that. Similarly, the transaction costs, the the cost of interacting across uh, different parts of your own organization or parts of other organizations uh, were already falling. And we were seeing that in terms of you know, what you had in terms of different locations where shared services or different satellite locations could work. Well, those same trends in lowering the transaction costs and kind of opening the aperture in where and how parts of organizations could interact. Well, that aperture is even wider now as COVID because we found different ways of being efficient and effective across various locations. Also seeing, you know, automation continuing and digital continuing to grow over the course of the pandemic. And then finally, there's been ongoing societal expectation shifts. And over the course of COVID, I think what we've we've recognized is the role of business and society continues to be be intertwined. In the US, the murder of George Floyd, mission of uh, the role of business to both take care of their employees as well as as shape some of the the broader uh, trends that are happening across society. I think one thing that I would just flag on that, Brian, is what this all means if we bring all of this together is that we have this incredible opportunity right now. And it's a once in a generational, once in a lifetime almost opportunity to truly reimagine how we're working to create something that is better and more exciting and more effective for employees, customers, as well as organizations themselves. So something to get excited about. 
I mean, how often do you get to have a clean drop on, hey, this is how we want work to look like, you know, following all these trends were happening, but now we've got a unique moment to actually do something. You know, so to Bonnie's point, it's pretty exciting. So how attuned are business leaders to these shifts that we're discussing and how prepared do you think they are to act? In, in your work with clients, do you have to make the case for why they need to act or are they pretty much realizing they now need to offer a different value proposition to their employees? I would love Brian's sense of this, but I think you just got to like the mindset shift that has happened across the workforce and what it's going to take to get leaders to actually recognize that as well. I think there is a start to recognizing it and understanding. And I think the attrition or the great resignation or the tsunami of turnover, whatever it is that you'd like to call it, uh, is triggering uh, some of that awakening, um, that sense in leaders. But I don't think it has happened as quickly as it has happened for the workforce. Yeah, I would agree. I would say the CEOs are acutely aware of some of the other shifts of actually how the organizations are running and what some of the uh, advances in technology can do and what some of the expectations of society are. But how that intersects with the workforce, I think, is what we're seeing, you know, an evolving understanding in people in different places. Look, it, it's been a tough two years and people are tired and tired of the pandemic. And, you know, and as we look at things like burnout, you know, 42% of women and 35% of men report being often or almost always burned out. You know, 85% of people reported that their well-being had declined and three times more people rate their mental health as very poor than before the crisis. And one of the stats that, that we found is, you know, 40% of people, when they were asked, has anybody checked up on you? You know, asked how you were doing over the course of the pandemic. Uh, 40% of people said, no, no one's checked up on, on how I was doing. And of those people, they were 40% more likely to be showing some signs of mental distress. So there's just the crisis has created a lot of exhaustion and grief, but also from the connectivity toll. And you know, not being together has made it harder for people who were otherwise isolated now feel even more so and the more stress and more fatigue. And so I think we're, we're now at a moment where, you know, there's all of this exciting change, but people are just are tired and 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 burned out. Indeed. So what impact has this had on the overall labor market? Can you take us through your research? Um, you know, what we're seeing is, you know, compared to before the pandemic, job openings are up 50 percent. Quits are up by a quarter and layoffs are down by a third. And so what this is telling us is, you know, the the labor market is tight and people across industries are having trouble finding work and employees are feeling, you know, confident in if they don't have a place where they feel valued by their organization, they feel valued by their manager, they feel rewarded by their work, they're willing to leave. And are these statistics that you're sharing US-based or are they global and if they are global, are you seeing any differences between regions, for example, in developing markets? It, 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 did, it does vary a bit by, by market, but I'd say the overall trend for white-collar knowledge work is similar across markets. Yeah, and this is a survey that we did do uh, across markets, over 5,000 respondents across Australia, Canada, Singapore, the UK, and the US. And one of the questions we asked is, what is the likelihood that you will leave your current job in the next three to six months. And 40% of employees, and this is the aggregate across the markets, 40% of employees said that they were at least somewhat likely to leave their current role. 
And this survey that, that we did is supported by surveys of led by other organizations. This is what we're seeing, you know, broadly people that are asking employee sentiment, large numbers of employees are at least somewhat likely to leave their current role in the near term. And those folks that are, uh, you know, somewhat likely to leave their role in the near term, are they leaving largely hoping to find better paying or more rewarding jobs or are they citing other reasons? You know, one of the things that we looked at is how many people are willing to leave the job without having another job lined up. There, there are some that have called this the, the Johnny paycheck or take this job and shove it view of, you know, index, you know, hey, how many people are willing to just get up and leave without something else uh, being there? In the past six months, 36% of employees have left without another job offer. And then in the next three to six months, you know, close to two thirds of employees are at least somewhat likely to leave without another job offer. So in other words, these aren't people that are leaving for better compensation, for a better role or opportunity. These are people that are saying, hey, I am leaving the current job and I am hopeful of what comes next, whether personally or professionally. But one of the things is if you line this up with the prior data on you know, job openings, if people are leaving an already tight labor market without necessarily having something lined up, it makes the labor market even tighter. It, it reduces talent supply even more. So th this to us is something that is as a warning sign, but also on the flip side, an opportunity. If people are willing to leave without another job lined up, it means there are some people in the sidelines that may be willing to jump back in for the right opportunity, structured in the right way, giving them the right source of meaning and exciting work. So it, it is a bit of a double-edged sword, but in the near term, you know, it's a warning sign. Bonnie? I think this is a really important piece to put into context as well. So when we said, when we looked at this survey, right, and we had 64% of that 40% that said, hey, we're at least somewhat likely to leave, and 64% of those said, and we'll do it without a job. If we were to extrapolate that across the U.S., that actually would account for the entire full-time population, full-time employed population of California, Texas, Massachusetts, and Georgia combined taking themselves out of the labor market. So that's why you're struggling to find employees because people aren't just going with the normal churn of, well, you know, I worked at Walmart, now I'm going to go work at Target or I worked at McKinsey and now I'm going to go work for another consulting firm, right? They're not recruiting from each other and trading jobs. They're actually taking themselves out of the workforce. I see. So leaving a job without another job offer does seem financially risky though. And we do know that many people have amassed savings throughout the pandemic. Do you see those savings as being a factor that allows people to feel safer about these decisions? Or are there other factors that are tending to drive these resignations without a job at the other end? I think there are a few segments and Bonnie can pick up on this as well. One is people that are of retirement age or near retirement age that are using this as the opportunity to retire. And so you have people that have accumulated sufficient savings and now are at a point where, you know what, I could have gone on for a bit longer, but now, you know, reflecting now is the time to head out. So you are seeing an uptick in retirements. You're also seeing caregivers and whether those are caregivers for elderly folks or whether they're caregivers for children, right? There's a, because there's a shortage of caregivers. You are seeing people make the trade off and say, hey, it doesn't make sense. It's super hard for us to find it and it doesn't make sense for us to pay for it particularly if I'm in a role that I'm not enjoying or I'm not feeling rewarded in my work, that trade-off no longer makes sense. And there is a, a segment of workers that, 
you know, I have the financial cushion now to take a break. And that can be to take a break to reskill. Now, arguably, some folks, those at some point, those folks will re-enter the labor market. You know, but we do see sufficient numbers, at least in the first two categories, to make this, you know, something that really is, you know, exacerbating the labor crunch. And this is like truly just breaking research. Um, but of those who quit without a job in hand, only 29% have actually returned to traditional full-time employment. So to that question of what are they doing? Well, they're doing a whole variety of things. We had an additional 2 million retirees over the course of, pand of the pandemic than what was um, originally forecasted. If you want to take that back to the, the state analogies that I was making earlier, that would be the entire full-time population of the state of Oregon. We had record numbers of, or we had the lowest ever unretirement rate that we've ever had. So people who were retired who then come back, people were not coming back from retirement. They were just retiring. We had people go back to school. We had, to Brian's point, people make the, make the decision around caregiving that, you know, with skyrocketing childcare costs um, and the unpredictability of childcare with COVID and everything else, that it didn't make sense. So we know that people at the start of the pandemic moved away from larger urban centers and many moved back to kind of where they had family support structures to help care for things for children and things of that nature. Um, we know that in this particular research that people did, you know, people have roommates, they've moved in with family members, et cetera. So we know that that is an enabling factor to being able to be more flexible. We've also had a record increase in small business applications and growth in the gig economy. So some people are continuing to work, just not in the traditional full-time sense. So they're finding flexible arrangements that will work for their schedules and their needs in a different way. Got it. Thanks, Bonnie. So you've both made clear that workers are leaving traditional employment in record numbers, and it's for a range of reasons. Do you think employers fully understand the nature of the challenge that this can present and some of the ways to address it? Ultimately, we can't solve a problem that we don't understand. And that's what we're finding in terms of that mindset shift that we talked about before. When we asked employees why they were leaving, what was going on there, what was driving those decisions, they're highly relational in nature. If valued by your manager, a sense of belonging, valued by your organization and work-life balance. There were a lot of other reasons that they identified as being important as well. So things like compensation, feeling engaged, um, caring for family, things of that nature. But those relational aspects were the ones that they found to be critically important. Those were the most essential. But employers said they thought the most important reasons were really more of an emphasis on the transactional elements. Well, they're getting poached by other companies. They're looking for a better job. They want to get paid more. The big takeaway is that there's a lot of relational aspects that are really critical for employees that they're saying are really valuable and important that employers are missing. And, and I, I would even say one of those work-life balance that may seem more structural versus relational, what we're actually seeing is employers focus more on the structural version of work-life balance. You know, what are, the, what are the working hours and where can you work from? And what we're hearing employees on work-life balance is, hey, we're worried about, you know, if we go back into the office, all of that, how do we get daycare? How do we, you know, manage all of life that happens uh, and that we need to have happen at home while we're at work? And so, yes, that's part of it. But also, when we ask people their number one concern about continuing to work from home, it was also work-life balance because there are no boundaries between work and home. 
the thought that they could be always on call, always be accessible. And so what we're seeing is the way that, that work-life balance is actually resolving in companies that are, that are thinking this through is it's really empowering managers to communicate clearly what the expectations of the team are so that people can take care of both work and life. So it's not just the structural thing of, hey, we're going to be in the office these days, you know, or we're going to allow work from home, but it's really getting at the underlying pieces of, hey, well, what are the day-to-day -day relationships at work and at home that enabled us to have a sustainable work-life balance? And I'd like to pick up on one other, uh, one other piece, and that's on the sense of belonging. One thing that we've seen through our race in the workplace research, which we launched last year, is that people of color turn over more frequently, uh, voluntarily turn over more frequently, uh, in the early 10 years of an organization. And when we dug into the research, we found that there were significant differences in the sense of belonging uh, between the groups. And so as we're thinking about inclusion as a lever, measuring inclusion, thinking about a broad sense of inclusive practices, creating that sense of belonging, I mean, we see sense of belonging as one of the top three reasons from this research as to why employees are either staying or leaving. And so organizations that are thinking broadly about DEI, those that are focused on belonging, we think the research shows you know, that that is, a, that is a real and important area to focus on in order to you know, attract and retain our more diverse colleagues. Thanks, Brian. In addition to fostering a sense of belonging among all employees, what are some of the other ways that employers should respond? Bonnie? It's about starting with just listening to your employees. One of the first things that Brian talked about when, we, when he talked about the different trends that were happening in the workforce was the societal, the change in societal expectations. Employees want to be a part of the solution. They want to be having the conversation with their employers. We have lived our lives in an environment in which top-down mandates were largely accepted and respected. We are now in a time where employees want more agency and they want to have a voice. So you need to start with listening. That means things like virtual town halls, reverse town halls, ask me anything sessions, providing those open um, two-way channels for communication and dialogue will be really critical to understanding what your employees need and what they want. But, but I also think that the listening to employees goes beyond the broad communications that Bonnie was just talking about, but also the communications between a manager and an employee. I mean, so one of the things that we found uh, over the course of the pandemic not surprisingly, over half of people we surveyed said that the pandemic caused them to reflect on their personal purpose, why they were here, what their goals are in life. And of those people that, you know, it caused them to reflect, a majority of them also reflected on, and does my current job intersect with my personal purpose? And what we're finding is manage one of the ways that organizations that are embracing this idea of aligning an individual's purpose with the organization's purpose is having managers listen to their employees individually, listen to their stories, hear what they're trying to do, trying to accomplish, and really engaging in that quite personal way. So I think this listening expands both to broad listening as well as very specific listening, you know, from an individual to a manager. Got it. So this is both in the, you know, across the organization as well as individuals. Um, how do you embed this approach, though, across an organization? Should employers make it one of a manager's core responsibilities to focus more on listening to employees and perhaps, you know, they're getting evaluated more on how well they foster this two-way communication? 
Um, should companies more regularly survey employees on their perspectives and how open their managers are to their input as employees? I think it's all of the above. I mean, one of the things that we're doing more work than ever on is actually coming through the pandemic, capability building for people managers and really, you know, helping them have a difficult conversation, helping them engage their employees in what the work-life balance is, helping them figure out how to create that sense of belonging, how, how, to, in, how to make sure that work is getting effectively done, in particular in a hybrid environment where the success often comes down to the individual manager and how they're connecting with their teams. So we're seeing a lot of individual manager capability building and alongside that, having new people leader scorecards that are really you know, tracking on those individual managers to recognize and reward those who are listening, for those who are connecting, for those that um, that are really executing on what we think that critical you know, manager-employee connection is. But it's not just that, it's also the broader. And Bonnie, do you wanna talk a little bit about the broader? Well, I, I was gonna agree with you wholeheartedly that it is absolutely both of these things. It is not one or the other, and we've gotta role model it from the top, right? So as an executive team, you have to be doing all of these things too. You need to be doing skip level calling to check in with employees. And if you haven't heard of that, that's when you're not just calling to check in with your direct reports, but actually the folks that are reporting into them um, because it can kind of remove some of the, the biases and telling my manager things and, um, and also builds additional connection. So you want to be doing it at a broad level. You want to be role modeling it. You want to be embedding it into the structures that exist within your organization to show, hey, this is a priority for us. And you have to be building the skills and capabilities. But the reality is, is that none of us were raised professionally in a virtual or a hybrid environment. We all grew up in person, right? That's how we learned to lead. When we talk about, you know, connecting our employees to a sense of purpose, we were able to do that in an in-person environment. My background is in healthcare. I was a nurse. Well, it's very easy to be connected to your sense of pers- of your sense of purpose when you're caring for patients, right? In a switch to a virtual model, in a switch to a hybrid model, we have to be much more deliberate, both about connecting people to purpose, but also about listening and every other element of people leadership. And we don't necessarily have those skills because it's not the same, same skill set that got us to where we are today. So we have to be really thoughtful about building that. So uh, we've talked a little bit about listening, but Bonnie, could you please elaborate a little bit on some of the other capabilities and skills that managers need to learn in this new context? Excellent. Yes. We're not going to just leave you with like the wet blanket of people are quitting and you don't understand why. We're going to give you some tips for how to address it. So first, anchoring and flexibility. We've gotten very lazy during the course of the pandemic, and we have decided that flexibility is the equivalent of where we work, that that is this one and the same. And if we're providing you know, remote or hybrid models, then that is flexible. We need to think beyond location. I would bet that if I ask anyone, they have had days where they started their day on a video conference at like 6 a.m. and they didn't end it until 6 p.m. with video conferences the entire way through. I don't think that is the flexibility that any employee truly desires, because all that is, is the flexibility to wear, you know, athleisure or pajamas on the bottom and be professional on top. That's not what I meant when I said I wanted flexibility. And we know that flexibility was the number one ask of employees prior to the pandemic. So in 2019, when we asked, this far um, exceeded many other asks around equity in the workplace and a whole variety of other things. So this is really important. 
But what does flexibility mean? It is not just where we work. It is when we work and it is how we work. So let's expand those definitions and think about how we can truly offer that. Because when we ask employees, how important is it to work remotely? It's actually not the most important factor, but flexible schedules is more important. It comes back down to that idea of agency and control and what is true flexibility. So thinking through what are the times that people need to work? When do we have core collaboration hours versus when we provide people with flexibility to actually work around their own schedules and meet the needs that come with work-life balance, right? So I may like to work at 4 a.m., but I may want to have, you know, pick up my kid from school and go to their soccer game or something of that nature, right? So providing me with some of that flexibility is important. That also comes down to trust, right, and how we work. Do we trust our employees to deliver against their, against their deliverables and the impact that we're expecting from them without micromanaging them? Are we giving them the opportunity to change roles and experiment with things? Those are the kind of things that we need to be really thoughtful about when it comes to flexibility. But also not a free-for-all. We need to have very clear guidelines and expectations. We need to be role modeling those guidelines and expectations as well in order to make sure that people actually have an understanding of what is expected. What do I need to do? What are the deliverables and what is the impact that people are expecting of me? And then how can I take advantage of flexibility that is now available? A quick example, I was talking with a CEO who was telling me about how great he found everything to be in the pandemic because of the flexibility he had. He was like, I've always been a morning person, but I couldn't really go into the office at 4 a.m. because that's just weird. But now nobody's in the office. So I start work at 4 a.m. I get so much stuff done. I then take my kids to school, which is great. And then, you know, I come and I do a little bit more. I then get a round of golf in. I had all these different breaks planned throughout his day that he, you know, did different things for his family, for his personal life, et cetera, and then would, would work at different points. And he said, then, you know, usually like after I put kids to bed, like I also then, you know, pick up and do a few more emails in the evening before I, before I go to bed. And I was like, do you communicate those breaks with your employees? Do your employees think that you start working at 4 a.m. and you end work at 10 p.m.? Or do they know that you play golf and you pick up your kids and you, you know, have lunch with your wife and all of these things? And he was like, well, of course they know that. And I said, have you told them? And he said, well, but they can't possibly think that I work from 4 a.m. to 10 p.m. without breaks. And I said, absolutely, that is what they think. And so we talked about different ways that he could actually start communicating and that that was really powerful, that he was role modeling flexibility, but only if he communicated it. And otherwise, he was setting a really unrealistic expectation for his employees. That's a great point. Um, you know, we've all gotten late night emails from managers and colleagues, but we have no idea how they're spending the totality of their days. What else should employers and managers be doing? So the, I would say the second biggest question that I get from employers when I have this conversation with them is, well, we think people are quitting because they're no longer connected. It's really easy to quit a keyboard or a Zoom screen. And so as soon as we bring people back into the office, then it'll all get fixed. And that's, you know, They'll remember why they love working here and, and we'll have our culture back. So newsflash, a lot of company cultures were really pretty bad before the pandemic. So it's not going to get better just because you bring people back in. This is, a, again, a deliberate choices that you have to make and in investing in building that sense of community. And it can be done virtually and in hybrid models as well. Is it as easy as running into people in the hallway? No. You have to be deliberate but it is possible. You can still build a really incredible sense of community in a virtual or hybrid model. 
And you can use the points of in-person time to strengthen that further. So not just bringing people in person for a specific activity, but also planning some you know, social events around those activities as well to promote social cohesion. The, the way I like to think about that is, you know, think about the office as the new offsite. It's the place where we come for deliberate interactions. And just like you wouldn't plan an offsite for just, hey, everybody show up at around eight and, you know, we'll knock off around four. You know, there's structure to it. There's deliberate social interactions that's a part of it. There's time for, you know, different types of work. So, you know, it takes some real intentionality around, hey, what are we doing together, you know, to build the culture. That makes a lot of sense. How can companies then go about bringing people back into their offices in a way that strengthens the culture, makes employees excited rather than making them think, you know, gosh, I wish I were just working at home. I could be getting so much more done. So I think that comes down to the purposeful presence question. So why are you bringing people back? It is not enough to say we're going to bring people back to the office because something was missing and we think it'll be back if we bring them back. That's not enough reason for employees. Employees are going to look at you and say, we kept the lights on for two years. We were more productive than ever. Why are you saying I have to come back? But they do want to come back. Employees typically do not want to be fully virtual or fully remote. They also typically do not want to be fully on site. So it is that balance, right? Why are you bringing them in? How can you answer that question? That comes down to the activity-driven model. So what do we do that we know is better done in person? And how do we make a conscious decision to bring people back for those activities? And then how do we actually have activity or activity-based office design, I believe is what it's called. And so things that we know are better in person, highly sensitive, emotional conversations, one-on-one negotiations, um, cross-functional, creative collaboration, problem-solving sessions. Those are things that Generally speaking, people say we don't quite have that figured out in a virtual world yet. Um, Things like meetings, actually, like process updates, things like that. We're doing really well with those in video conference. Those probably do not count as something to bring people back in for. Apprenticeship, mentorship, some of those, again, in person is helpful. So then if you think about what that means for real estate, it means that those open office plans, probably not what we need overall. We need more team rooms. We need more huddle spaces for those one-on-one kind of sensitive conversations. If we put four teams down a long conference table and they're all trying to problem solve together, people are going to have sensory overload, especially after the past two years. Thinking about if you're going to a hoteling model, which many organizations are considering um, as they downsize some of their real estate, how do you think about insuring that people can find each other when they are on site. So if you say, look, the first Tuesday of every month is going to be our cross-functional in-person collaboration day. If you are invited to these, you know, strategic meetings, et cetera, we expect you to be in person because these will be in-person first meetings. Well, then I might come in even though I'm not invited to that meeting because I know that I need to meet with someone from HR or finance or, or someone else. If I can't find them, I'm going to immediately change my mind about wanting to come in. So you also want to think about, okay, well, where's our kind of like finance land? Where's our HR land? How are we going to map some of that in terms of, in terms of our office design? So this notion of giving employees more flexibility in when they work and how they work and even where they work um, seems reminiscent of the gig economy. Is this almost like gigifying what a standard employee experience is just by giving people more control over their overall work context? 
I want to be really clear, I'm not advocating for the gigifying of standard employment. <laughs> I am advocating for increased flexibility within standard employment. I think that is very different from the gig, the gig economy and gigification. Yeah, I mean, just I mean, the, the way the way I would think about it is in the gig economy, what you have is standard packets of work that are uh, that you interact with a platform, and you know, and you're working with the platform, very transactional in terms of what you're doing, very defined in terms of of what the work is. I think what we're really talking about is a different level of conversation between an individual and their manager of hey, how do I collaboratively work on this in a way that provides me flexibility. So it's not just clicking into an app to say, hey, I'm available for trips at these times. It's really having a conversation and saying, hey, I know we need to collaborate with areas X, Y, and Z with these other people on the team. How do we do this in the best way? Is by the way, here's what I've got going on this week. And then, you know, having that ongoing conversation with your manager. The reason I asked the question was really, we read about how people go into the gig economy because they really love the flexibility. And it's a proof point that flexibility is important to all workers. So how do you as a non-gig employer make sure that you're at least paying continuous attention to the aspects that you can offer from a flexibility perspective? Because it does seem like something that everybody appreciates. I mean, 100%, right? It was the number one ask before the pandemic. It has not reduced in its importance to employees over the course of getting to feel more flexibility during the pandemic. So if you can't figure out a way to offer flexibility and your decision is we're going to go back five days a week, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. in office, in person, et cetera, you will lose employees because other people are figuring that out. But it is not to go so far as to be saying, we're going to pay you on a daily basis based on what you do, a la gig. You also need to build up the relational aspect, right? Because what employees want is flexibility and they want those relational factors, right? They want a strong culture. They want to feel valued. They want, to, they want that connectivity and connection. And that's where traditional employment can play a really big role and can have an advantage over gig economy if it's done right. That's a great point. I mean, you, you definitely get more in the way of relationships in traditional employment than you might in, say, a gig economy. And employers still need to maintain certain levels of productivity. How are companies going to continue doing that while they offer this increased flexibility that we've been talking about? Or is your thesis that with the flexibility might come a little less productivity, but in return, you get longer-term employment, which maybe increases your productivity uh, with that higher employee retention. So this wasn't a question I got a lot in the beginning of the pandemic, was how are we going to ensure that people are productive? And one of the questions that I would return with was, how did you know that they were productive before? Because it turns out like butts in seats is not the best measure of productivity. And when people say, yeah, but people are walking their dogs now during meetings. Like, whoa. I'm like, does it matter? Are they contributing to the meeting? Are they getting their work done? If so, then maybe it's probably okay if they walk their dog. That might actually be helpful for their sanity too. Mental health break. So I think it's setting goals and thinking through what are the right approaches to measuring productivity in general and how do we ensure those? Because all of the research actually says that people are more productive when they're teleworking, not necessarily more efficient, but more productive when they're teleworking than they are when they're in person. This gets back to the need for building these the right skills and capabilities. And it's not just managers that need these skills and capabilities. It's also employees. We need to understand how we're working 
um, in these remote environments. And that means investing in the capabilities and the development opportunities to ensure that you have the right skills. But managers do play an outsized role in connecting people to the company, the purpose, and the culture. And so it's going to be that much more important to, to invest in those leaders and ensure that they um, can operate effectively in the new models. Okay, so organizations need to figure out the best hybrid work models for different teams and different types of activities and, and also help both the managers and the workers that they're uh, working with adapt to this new environment. Are there any other measures organizations and managers need to take to help ensure that they're succeeding in this new context? So as we think about how we're valuing employees, because right, this was the, the number one and two reasons I believe that people were saying that they would leave was I don't feel valued by my organization. I don't feel valued by my manager. And I think that as employers, as leaders, we're often like, well, isn't the way that I show people that they're valued by, isn't that pay? Isn't that compensation? I get that question a lot. I think that it's more than that. And employees would say that it was more than that as well. So I think kind of two pieces that I like to highlight. One is there is a compensation and benefits element. So are we on par? Are we meeting you know, pay parity with our competitors? And then how are our benefits aligned to the changing priorities of our employees? I was speaking with a company the other day, and they were talking about how they always provide gym memberships. And that when they actually looked at the gym memberships, who was using them was, you know, it was a, a niche group of people. And they were trying to think if maybe there were other benefits that would be more helpful. And one of the things that they suggested was, what about a subsidy for cleaning? Or if we could provide access to, you know, house cleaners or, or clean, vetted cleaning companies or things of that nature, would that be a benefit that would be helpful? Well, that's really interesting because that's another way to address work-life balance and address prior, the changing nature of priorities for employees, Right. You may not be changing the work that people are doing, but you're giving them a tool to create more balance in their home life. So across the board, I would say every organization I've been talking to has been rethinking their benefits right now to the point that now when employers say, well, we're doing a benchmarking to understand how our benefits compare, my response typically is, great, that benchmarking is not going to be accurate because everybody is changing what they're offering right now. So you're going to want to benchmark that again next year. It's not something that you're going to be able to sit on because it's highly um, volatile at the moment. One other thing that we're seeing employers do is have a behavioral and mental health parity analysis uh, within their benefits. So looking to see, is there health benefits for physical health? Are those on par with the behavioral and mental health benefits? Because we do recognize the amount of burnout and mental stress. So we are seeing as people are looking at the benefits and looking at the whole person, are we actually providing parity across the different types of health that um, and well-being that we want to promote. Uh, that, that, that's a great point. I have a final question for you both. What most excites you about the findings from your research and the work you're doing with employers on this topic? Because clearly, you know, this is a major transition point for many. And um, it, it, you know, some of the news is not great. So what has you most excited about the findings from your research and the work you're doing with employers? It comes back to that opportunity we have. I think it's incredibly exciting to live in a time where we could make a Olympic-sized move in terms of creating a working model that works for employees, customers, and organizations. I don't know that we'll get that opportunity again in, the ne- in my lifetime or my professional lifetime. And I would add to that, you know, the relational elements of work have always been important. And now we're seeing with with the trends that are happening with people that are leaving 
we're seeing organizations spend even more time thinking about those relational elements. And hopefully that ends up not just with increased productivity, but also increased happiness of workers. And if we think about the millions of workers that could have a, you know, spend the majority of their, their life at work. And if you think about improving the happiness of those workers while maintaining or improving productivity, it's a massive opportunity. So very exciting. Bonnie, Brian, that was great. I mean, the whole notion of being able to make a huge step change and really help improve the happiness of a large, you know, a large, large part of the population sounds quite exciting indeed. Um, Thanks again for taking the time with us. We really appreciate it. And we encourage our listeners uh, to follow up on this discussion by reading your article. We've included a link in the show notes for today's episode. As always, we'll share a transcript of this discussion on our Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can also easily explore our library of more than 100 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, just email us at insidethestrategyroom at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page on mckinsey.com slash ITSR, follow us on Twitter at MCK Strategy, or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again next week inside the Strategy Room.